Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done that, who have done just that. They never gave up, no matter what. So many of my guests have survived incredible circumstances. And as a result, what I have seen, the common thread is that they have a passion to help others who may be going through something similar. Consequently, a lot of them are authors and have written their stories, such as my guest today. This show gives each of these individuals an opportunity to share their story, their journey, and to share the tips that they've learned and their have encouragement for those who might be going through something and also on how to not just survive but to thrive through negative circumstances. Our show Never Ever Give Up Hope is now heard in over 140 countries. We still maintain the number one rank on Google searches for the subject of hope, a subject that is internationally recognized. So no matter where we live, we need to encourage one another and listen and share those stories that give us hope. So I thank you, my guests, each of you for sharing and also my listeners, because without you, we wouldn't have a show. So they thank you for your feedback and all your positive input. With me today, I have Deborah or Deb Brandon. Deb is a PhD. She's also a brain injury survivor. She is a professor in the Mathematical Sciences Department at Carnegie Mellow University. And she has raised awareness of and improved understanding of brain injury. She's an award-winning author of two books, both of which she is passionate about. Her first book is But My Brain Had Other Ideas. I love that title. And that is her memoir of recovery from a brain injury. And then something really quite different, and it's going to be very interesting to hear what she has to share about another passion of hers, which is in her book, entitled Threads Around the World. 
So that's a little bit of an intro to Deb and she's got a lot to share today and I know that each of you will get something out of it and will be able to relate to many things that she is going to share with us. So welcome Deb. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to this. Excellent. We're going to have a great time. So in reading your bio, one thing that really shouted out to me, Deb, was that you wanted to help your loved ones understand the difficulties you were going. But before we get into that, let's start at the beginning. So tell me about your brain injury. What happened? So I have uh, clusters of malformed blood vessels in my brain. They're called cavernous angiomas, and uh, two of them bled. I suffered a lot of deficits from it. I was in seizures, headaches, uh, various you know, confusion, various other things. And the only known treatment for future to prevent future bleeds is um, surgical removal. So I ended up undergoing three brain surgeries. In terms of the brain injury, that was it. Uh, it was the recovery that things got even more interesting. So is this, uh, is it an inherited, something that's inherited, or how does this happen? Uh, it could be sporadic. In my case, it's inherited. My father has them, but really? his were... Yeah, but his weren't symptomatic. My sister has them, so does my nephew. My sister underwent surgeries. Did they have sim similar symptoms or were you unique? Every brain injury is different. So we had some similar symptoms and some totally different. For instance, she had uh, issues with speech and I didn't really. I only had minor issues. Hers continue now. She has trouble with putting, well, not so much now. She had a lot of trouble putting together sentences. You know, she used to express something or try to with one word, things like that. Okay. In your research, you must have learned a lot about this, obviously, because in, in, in your book. So is there anything that you would say to look for if, someone feels that they may may have a, a similar type of injury or is this something that a doctor easily diagnoses? The only way to diagnose this is through MRIs because um, the blood flow through these um, through these angiomas is very slow so they don't show up so much in uh, CAT scans autopsy which oh my uh, goodness. is not recommended. No, exactly. How did I know? Well, I had some very mild symptoms at one point, and uh, you know, I was dizzy for off and on for a couple of days. I had uh, some mild issues with vertigo, tingling and numbness uh, in my arm. I mentioned it. I was I was puzzled, but I was going through a lot of stress at the time, so I thought maybe it was related to stress. But I mentioned it to my general physician a few months later. I, I was I had a, a regular checkup, and she had me go through a variety of tests, uh, including well EKG because of the numbness, I assume, but also a brain MRI, and that's how it was diagnosed. At the time, I asked, I asked a neurosurgeon, how will I know if this happens again? Could it happen right, again? Right. And his response was, 
you'll know. Oh, really? Interesting. (laughs) The other thing was, he said, well, chances are this is a one-time thing, so really you don't need to worry about it. Well, needless to say, six months later, (laughs) I proved him wrong. Really? Now, is Um, it it life-threatening? Yes. Just in general, if you have a bleed in your brain, well, just by the mere existence of these things in your brain, it could be life-threatening. In my case, I had one in my brain stem, and anything in the brainstem can be life-threatening, even if it's pinprick size. The other one I had was larger than golf ball size, and by its size, it was life-threatening oh, because if it bled, then it could be a large um, surface area. So it really depends where it is. It depends on many things. Uh, it it can be life-threatening. It yeah, a lot. Yeah, you know, it could be that you have them, but you don't know, and yes. they're totally asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. Some people have them; they never bleed. Some people have them, and they and they're not even symptomatic. So, if they're not symptomatic, no big yes. deal, right? Yes. And what about cause? Is it? Oh, you said it was hereditary. Is it always or? No. Um, there's some are sporadic. There is just some mutation. Um, and some, with some people, it's hereditary. As I said, in my case, it is. Obviously, yeah. You said your sister and your father, correct? Yes. How did this affect you? <laughs> Other than, you, okay, so she's laughing. There must be quite a story there. <laughs> All right, so enlighten us. Okay, well, when, uh, you mean now or in, during the early days? I would say during the early days for now. Well, during the early days, it was it turned my life upside down. I was I was rushed to the the hospital several times. Um, I couldn't drive because of the seizures. I couldn't um, I couldn't work. I was you know I didn't realize it at the time, but there were issues with confusion and short term memory. But I again I wasn't aware of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had terrible balance problems. I couldn't have. I couldn't have uh, stood up in front of the class. Um, so I lost my independence. I couldn't be the mother I used to be because I didn't have the energy. With brain injury comes neuro fatigue, which yes. is really debilitating. So I was really only awake and alert for two, three hours a day. Wow. The times when I was awake, I was often not alert. I was very groggy. So I I didn't have the time or energy to be the mother I wanted to be. I I used to read to my kids. I used to do stuff with them, and I just couldn't. I did not have the ability to do it. So it really turned my life upside down, turned the family's life upside down. And at one point, I crawled out of denial because I for the longest time I didn't want to even read about it, about my condition, because I hoped it would just go away. Right, of course. But at one point I as I said, I'm being rushed to the hospital all the time. I'm stay you know, hospital stays, constant uh doctor's appointments. It was you know, my life revolved around this and I had little else. That was my world. Uh, at one point I'm just going, This isn't a life and I said, Okay there has to be a solution. And the doctors here, the attitude was, we're going to wait and see. 
we're going to wait for the next acute bleed. And at that time, I was very much in the mode of, yes, doctor, no doctor, because I didn't have the wherewithal to do anything more than that. You know, I was okay with that. But then as time wore on and they're saying, you know, no, no, we're waiting for the next acute bleed, I'm going, wait. I have no quality of life. I can't continue like this. And I'm going, there has to be a solution. It, there has to be some way of uh, making my life better. Right. And I happened on a book um, about a woman who was in a similar situation, and she underwent brain surgery. She had one in the brain stem like I did. She underwent brain surgery, and it was rough and everything. And, and everything but it was her chance to reclaim her life which she did and at that point I'm going oh so brain surgery is a viable option <laughs> because until then the doctors were saying oh no 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 too risky um, so I decided to go for a second opinion and I actually contacted the neurosurgeon who uh, operated on this woman and he said, by the mere fact that you ha the one in the brainstem and the large one in the right parietal lobe, by the mere fact that the one is big and the other is in the brainstem, any kind of bleed, let alone uh, an acute bleed, is life-threatening. And he said, I can do these surgeries. And he's, he's known for brainstem surgeries. He's an expert on cavernous angiomas. So I contacted the surgeon that this woman, um, uh, who performed the surgery on this woman, he said that given the position of the one in the brainstem and the, and the size of the other, any kind of bleed, let alone an acute one, would be life-threatening. He'd performed a lot of these surgeries, I mean hundreds of them. He was an expert on cavernous angiomas. I wanted his opinion. I wanted him to perform it. That's how it came about, getting the surgeries. One thing I do know a little bit about in brain injuries is that an emotion that very often people experience is anger. Did you go through that as well? And was that part of it being difficult for your family to deal with? I wasn't aware of it. Okay, okay. My now ex-husband says that I was very angry. Now, I was, I know that I was resentful of him and this was after the surgeries before the surgery I think before the surgeries there wasn't much resentment but after the surgeries he I felt like he resented the attention I was getting his behavior was actually detrimental to, um, to my um, recovery because for instance he would you know I needed a lot of naps well he disturbed me a lot during the naps one of the things he did was, my daughter was, so I was upstairs in my room, my daughter was down the hall listening to music with headphones, and he's calling up the stairs for her, and finally, you know, right, you know, I, I can hear this, and finally she hears him and answers, and he says, be quiet, mommy's trying to take her nap, and at that point he'd be calling and yelling for a while, so I was... At that point, I was awake, so I went downstairs, and uh, he and he said, "How was your nap?" And I said, "Well, I couldn't. You know, it was it, it was too noisy. I couldn't." He says, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I asked Sarah to be quiet." So I said, "No, your yelling woke me up." So <laughs> there was a lot of there was a lot of um, that kind of thing going right, on. Right. 
so it was so there was resentment towards him at the time I was aware of that after the surgeries when the book came out he told me he told me well why didn't you write about this anger and that anger and I didn't really remember it okay and I talked to my kids about it I you know thinking wow there's a lot I don't remember and they were somewhat surprised they said to me that no I didn't raise my voice like he said I did uh, no you know this kind of stuff but I know that I resented him now later on going through the recovery there was some anger but you know some rage but it was right but compared to many other brain injury survivors mine was pretty pathetic uh there was i actually wrote a piece about it i mean it, it's that feeling of losing all control yes. that your your the rage is boiling over and you are having trouble keeping it in rain what happened was i was on at this point I separated from my husband and he was on the phone to me and he went on and on and on and on I was getting angrier and angrier but he wouldn't let me interrupt and finally you know I was so enraged I took that phone and threw it onto the bed and it bounced twice as I said my rages well that was one of the bad ones I did have a couple of others where I you know, I I, uh, I forget what happened, but I was really, really angry. And my daughter chose the wrong moment to ask me some, for something. And we were going somewhere. So, oh, yes, she wanted to get into the car. And I got really angry at her and threw the keys right at her. And she caught them. And I was even more angry at her for catching them. So, but it's that fury. Yes. Getting into yes. the car, I was, I, I, Oh, I slammed everything in sight and I was gripping that wheel, that steering wheel with, you know, my knuckles were white. Uh, so it was there. But again, I I was aware of these instances, but I, I don't think they were really a major part of it. I think I was one of the lucky ones with that. I think that's really interesting to me personally because... My husband had a serious brain injury from a car accident over 25 years ago, and he became a different person. There's, and I think that's one of the common threads, as you alluded, you know, a little bit in your in your story that um, these things do change you. Well, pain in itself, sure. you know, will have an, a, 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 a definite effect on our lives. So, what I want to ask you in that vein is those people around you and how it affects them because it affects family members it affects relationships whether they're friends or family or even in business and this is something that you have to you know contend with but it's also something that your family has to contend with so what did you do to bridge that gap what did you do to help you know alleviate those problems that could have possibly been very serious well one thing I did was when all this happened when I came out of the surgeries I realized that this was too much for me to deal with as in I needed a therapist and I felt like the entire family needed that so my son started going to therapy my daughter didn't she well my husband at the time said that 
she wouldn't want to, then she said she didn't want to. I don't know what the dynamics, what actually went on there, but she ended up not going. And I think it's one of the things that made it a lot worse for her. My relationship with my son got much stronger. Um, my relationship with my daughter was awful for a few years. I mean, we used to be really close. I tried to maintain that closeness, but at that point, you know, for for the longest time, I was too tired to really do much. But when I did have the ability, it was in some sense too late. It was, she was a teenager at the time, which really didn't help. What's happened now in the last few years, I mean, she was very badly hurt by this. I mean, one thing she said to me, she thought I was gone, then I came back as in from the hospital, and then I left again. And that's when I moved out, when I, you know, my ex and I separated. So there was all this going on in her life, and she blamed me for most of it, if not all of it. Only a few years ago, so this was about 12 years ago that uh, I had the surgeries. So only about two years ago, two, three years ago, did we get close again. And now we have this great relationship but it was, I had to work at it. I really yes. had to work okay. at it. She reached a point where she realized she had to work at it as well. And now again, we're, we're back to being very close. I mean, she trusts me. For the longest time, she did not trust me. Well, of course, because she doesn't know what's going to happen. And you probably didn't either. Right, yeah. Now, there are many emotions, of course, that are connected here as well. You know, things that you have to go through and your family has to go through. There's fear. There's fear of the future. There's fear of the unknown. There's mm. there's guilt, you know, and because you can see what's happening with your family, etc. So mm-hmm. how did you teach yourself to focus on your healing and not on the pain? Well, I think for starters... My life was so miserable before the surgeries, and I saw the surgeries as a chance to reclaim my life. As confused and as as out of it as I was after the surgeries, I understood that this is my time to work at this to get maximum, um, to optimize my recovery. So I went into inpatient rehab, and I was focused on that. That was it. When I came out of it, when I went back home, I didn't have any kind of rehab. So I had to do everything. I mean, I went, I arranged to see a neuropsychologist. I I went to see a neuro-ophthalmologist. My neuropsychologist told me that, that the gaming industry has more money uh, to spend on developing these things than the rehab industry. So he suggested I just play brain games, which I did, and I was I was very determined. I worked really hard at it. There were days when I couldn't, but I was really, this was really important. I had to reclaim my life. Mm-hmm. There were times when I was afraid that I couldn't. Uh, in recovery from brain injury, there are lots of, you know, two steps forward, five steps yes, back, yeah. three steps forward, one step back. It, it's there is an overall good trend, but there are a lot of other things that happen in the middle. And you reach plateaus, and during those plateaus, you start you know, wondering if this is where you're going to be stuck. And that's really tough, and, you know, and there's depression that goes together with it. Um, you know, someone rummages around in your brain. It's not surprising that you're going to be depressed, clinically depressed. 
in addition to the situational stuff going on. I came out of it very severely depressed. I actually became uh, suicidal a few times and uh, ended up on meds. And every time I try, well, I don't do that anymore, but I went through a couple of times and I tried to lower the meds because I hate the idea of being on meds. Every time I do, uh, I start getting into that dark place. So I don't want to be there. So there's a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, I was talking to my neuropsychologist about it, and he said the feisty ones fight, and they're the ones who recover. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess, according to him, I was a feisty one. So you were I stubborn, am a, right? Yes. The, oh, that, yes. That determination to not yeah. give up. And yeah. that's exactly what you did, is you didn't give up. No. I, I, I couldn't. I, I just couldn't. I didn't want to be a burden on my kids. I needed a better quality of life to continue. I did not want to get into that, to be in that horrible place, you know, when you're suicidal. I, I just, I, it was, I had to stay away from the edge at all costs, at all costs. And I wanted to get back into the classroom. I needed to that okay. independence. And the thing is with, with getting back into the classroom, I had to start from relearning the multiplication tables. Wow. And I did, except that I still, I have trouble with a few of them. But, and I had to relearn college algebra, and then I went to calculus, and I just, I went through the books and did all the problems. And sometimes I had to go back, you know, if I had trouble, then I'd go back and read the material, that kind of thing. But again, there was that, tenacity that stubbornness i the thought of being dependent on someone i i just i just couldn't bear it i didn't know whether i'd be able to go into the classroom sarah my daughter came to ask me about uh, some algebra high school algebra homework and i couldn't do it i mean i could do the simple a couple of the simple problems and then there were ones that involved more than three or four steps and i just couldn't do them so at that point I was really afraid that I wouldn't be able to go back in the classroom. So I actually looked at alternative careers. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm involved in this group called uh, Weave a Real Peace. Uh, they're a networking organization. Basically, it's a group of like-minded people who want to make a difference, in particular through the textile techniques the idea is to Im help improve the quality of life of textile artisans around the world through their textile traditions. So what I actually did was I got interested in, okay, how can I go out in the field to help? And I looked into the idea of, there are a lot of people who volunteer in this kind of thing, but they only know one aspect of it. And I felt like there was a need to, for people to manage this kind of thing. So I actually went to a workshop to try and understand all the different steps involved from designing the products to creating a niche in the Western market, etc. And the, with the idea that I could perhaps be, you know, coordinate this kind of thing. So I actually, and I, I ended up going to Guatemala and um, to get an idea of what is involved in the field. But I ended up being able to go back into the classroom. That alternative thing didn't happen. There must have been a pivotal point where you made that decision. I know you, you basically shared that, but was there 
any instance or circumstance in particular that just made you say no and you turned around and possibly is that when you started writing like what was that point in your life well the okay so the first time which is when I decided to go through the surgeries was I was going into hospital you know one you know several times a you know once or twice a week and staying there for a couple days the seizures were keeping me from doing a lot of things and then lying in bed I'm going you know this is just not okay and my mind somewhat you know my mind is wandering and I look at my nightstand and there's a whole bunch of meds there and I'm going hmm I wonder which ones I could use which ones could I overdose on and that's when I went, yike. And that's when I went, uh-uh, no, got to do something. So that was the first time. When it came to after the surgeries, the thing is that I was, after the first two surgeries, I was I was ready. This is what I, you know, I prepared for it. After this was done, I was going to reclaim my life, etc., etc. But then I had to undergo a third surgery, which was an emergency, and I wasn't prepared for that one. And after that one, I felt lost. So I went through a good while when I was really in in a bad state. I was shocked out of denial then, because before that, after the surgeries, I was going, yeah, I can do this, life is good, la la la. You know, I, I was shocked out of denial. I had to face reality, and that's where the fear comes in, you know, are you going to be able to get out of this, this kind of thing. I played this game, uh, the Simon, you know that game where there's the it looks like a flying saucer and it has the different um, four different colored things uh, red blue yellow and green and you press each one it makes a different note and you have to press you have to press things in sequence it plays this tune you have to press in sequence so I was doing that and because my uh, sequential thinking was damaged my neuropsychologist suggested that and it took me a good few weeks to win that first round. But again, I kept at it and kept at it. So there was, yeah, I think I felt lost for a good while. And then my neuropsychologist kind of set me on the right path with things. And that was get going again. Moment. Now, you have written two books. And mm -hmm. could you share a little bit about each one. Now your first one as a memoir, is it written strictly as a story or is it written as some type of a, a handbook for people who may know someone who's experiencing brain injury or their family or themselves? Share a little bit about your first book and, and who would like to read it? Well, it is written as a story. Uh, basically, I felt like I this is what I could offer. I could offer my own experience, my own story, and through that, given the similarities that uh, between the experience of brain injury survivors, I figured that through my stories, it would help other people. And that was the way I also the I started out. It was sort of journal like, but as I learned to write, it became more as a story. I mean, when I came out of it, I, I was looking for 
literature for information and there were these how-to books and there were the books written by medical professionals and this kind of thing and that's not what I needed I needed something else I needed stories of people who'd been through this um, to hear from someone who knew what I was dealing with so I wrote what I needed and couldn't find okay okay and your second book my second book, this actually came out of that organization, Weave a Real Peace. It was actually during the, you know, a few days before the brain bleeds, before the all hell broke loose, that the newsletter editor suggested that I turn, I'd been, okay, I'd been writing articles about textile techniques from around the world for the organization's quarterly newsletter. And at some point, few years after I did this, I, I, after I started doing this, the newsletter editor suggested that we put the collection together, you know, make a booklet out of it and sell it to the membership as a fundraiser. A few days after, after we decided, yes, we're going to do this, that's when all hell broke loose and I ended up, you know, in hospital and all that wonderful stuff. So it was put on hold for quite a bit. But after the surgeries, I mean, I was a board member at the time. Actually, I, I yeah, I was actually the, the president. And it became the organization, the work of the organization became higher priority, uh, higher priori priority for me. I wanted to do more for it. And I got into the writing and I was working with a writing coach. I started working more on articles together. I started rewriting them. And I found that I was... I was shifting my focus from talking about the techniques themselves, which was my original interest, um, to the stories behind the techniques, the traditions, mm -hmm. the communities, okay. the artisans. So the book changed, you know, cha you know, evolved as I wrote. Somebody suggested, oh, you, you know, you should put good photo. You know, you need to do justice to this. You need good photos. So then I found the textile photographer in the country he said sure let's do this <laughs> and again it just took off from there who buys this well certainly members actually it's interesting it's a wide variety of people more than i thought would it's certainly textile artisans mm -hmm. warp members warp is an acronym for weave a real piece uh, another interesting one was people who know someone who who's a textile artisan right. that okay. kind of thing okay. what happened along the way as i was writing and as i was you know thinking about what's going on with me through the memoir i realized that there's a lot more to traditional textiles and i realized it's not just about that particular technique or these particular people there's a much bigger message there in terms of Stories are inherent in textiles. Through our stories, that's when we see our similarities, our commonalities. So on the one hand, textile traditions celebrate our differences, but through the stories, we actually see our, you know, us as a whole, humanity yes, as a yes. whole. This really spoke to me, and of course, one of the things I became passionate about so I think that speaks to a lot of people too, that side of it. People who aren't into textiles so much, before they realize that it's stories, they aren't that excited about it, except for the fact that got, it's, it's a pretty book. It has nice pictures and this kind of thing. 
Uh, well, what, what I get out of it from what you said is that it would be an educational read. It would definitely be an interesting read and something that is unusual. It's stories. It's, uh, okay, it's, okay. So that it's back to storytelling. Everybody loves a good story. Apparently, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then as far as your other book goes, I can see that being a real help for people, as we talked earlier, who, <clears throat> who may be going through or know someone going through something similar. And always, when you go through these kind of traumas in your life, we do need encouragement. We do need that other people have survived, and not just survived, but have overcome and thrived and became whole again in many areas. And so for that, we thank you. And for that encouragement, we thank you. And I thank you for sharing your story because every story is different. I'm a firm believer that everybody has a story and everybody has a story that can help someone else. And that's what I know that your your true goal and motivation is. And you made that exquisitely clear today. And for that, I thank you so much, Deb, for being part of our show today. Thank you for the opportunity. Is there anything in conclusion that you would like about anything that you would like to add? Life is good. That's a book title right there. <laughs> I thank you so much again, Deb, and oh, for being you. on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.